Um, in some of our research, we found that school children who are learning two languages from birth actually outperform monolingual children on tasks that measure a child's awareness of and ability to manipulate the sounds of language. Disability is called phonological awareness, and it's a very important precursor to reading. Teachers' voices. voices du professor. The voices of the Welcome to a new episode of Teachers' Voices. In this episode, we will talk about multilingualism in a culturally diverse world. I am your host, educational researcher Nina Alonso, and today we will first talk to expert Kaya Jasinska. Kaya's research helps explain some of the situations educators experience around the world when supporting children's learning various languages at different developmental stages and in different contexts and geographies. Listen in as three educators share with us their inspiring stories. Daniela's, an Italian language facilitator supporting young bilingual kids in Luxembourg. Olasun Kanmins, an innovative international teacher prize winner who teaches English in Nigeria. And finally, Jose Luis, who tries to infuse the love of languages to older kids in an international private school in Singapore. Let's first welcome Kaya, who is a cognitive neuroscientist interested in the neural mechanisms that support language, monolingual or bilingual, signed or spoken, reading and cognitive development across the lifespan. Her research asks questions such as, how does early life experience change the brain's capacity for language and learning? Hi, Kaya. Thanks for your contribution. Oh, it's my pleasure. Very happy to be here. Kaya, we will hear testimonials of teachers working in multilingual contexts with children who grow up with several languages. I've heard children who learn two languages from birth might have learning advantages. So I would like to ask you, what's happening in the brain of a bilingual or multilingual child in the first years of development? Here's the interesting part that concerns difference between monolingual and bilingual brains. Now, for a baby who's exposed to two languages, so say French and English, at 12 months, that bilingual baby actually retains some of the neural sensitivity for universal speech sound discrimination. Now, just like a monolingual baby, that bilingual baby hones into the contrasts to the sounds that are found in the language she's exposed, but her brain will also show greater activation in, in that key phonological processing region, that superior temporal gyrus, that two foreign language sounds at a time in development when her monolingual peer can no longer do this. So the monolingual peer has long lost this ability that the bilingual baby retains. And we think that this bilingual uh, advantage might actually support language learning and even learning to read later in childhood. Much of your research has been on literacy acquisition in multilingual context. Could you tell us a little about how bilingualism or multilingualism affects reading development in children? Now, you can imagine as children learn to read, their awareness of sounds and their ability to manipulate those sounds helps a child make a mapping between a letter and sound, which is really the entry point into literacy. Now, bilingual children who show that advantage in phonological awareness also show advantages in reading. And we've observed this in school children in Canada, in the United States, and even children that are growing up 
in low literacy communities, uh, such as um, some of our latest work in rural uh, areas of Cote d'Ivoire. Now, there's this um, false idea floating around that a child can start learning a second language when it's you know, quote unquote safe, that if children are exposed to two languages early, they will be confused, right? So they won't learn either language proficiently, they will have um, problems in their languages, and so you should really teach them one and then the other. But we don't find that bilingual children uh, show any language delays or confusion relative to their uh, monolingual peers. We do see that bilingual children sometimes use two languages when speaking, and that language mixing can be interpreted as as confusion or misinterpreted as confusion, rather. But language mixing is actually a very common, normal feature of bilingual speech between two highly proficient bilinguals. So when you see bilingual adults who are speaking together and they code switch, meaning that they're fluidly switching between their two languages, we would tell that as a mark of language skill. Um, and that is certainly true of the same behavior in, in child bilinguals. Kaya, in line with what you have just said, our first interview teacher today, Daniela, works with very young children in kindergartens, supporting the link between heritage language, local languages, and the development of early literacy. Oh, that's so cool. I'm really looking forward to hearing that. Hello, Daniela. Ciao, Nina. Come stai? Daniela first explains the work she does with very young children and storytelling supporting bilingualism. Je raconte des histoires en italien qui ma langue. I told stories in Italian, which is my mother tongue, to children from local kindergartens to help them keep a link with Italian as their family heritage language, with the idea that this could ease them their learning of the main official languages here in Luxembourg. Linking this description to what Kaya told us about young kids who grew up in multilingual contexts, I asked Daniela how did it feel at the beginning working with very young children, managing different languages. It was great because they could not understand everything at the beginning and they mixed a lot of the two languages. So they would Italianize Luxembourgish or French words and they came up with words that are incomprehensive for a non-Italian speaker. But it was really funny. It was an amazing thing. Daniela describes the kind of teaching intervention that she develops in. When I arrive in the kindergarten, I have my group of young kids running into my arms, welcoming me warmly, very warmly. It is fantastic. But then we all sit down on the floor because we need to be all at the same level. Some of them come to sit on my lap, some others next to me or in front of me. And what I do is I show them the book that I'm going to read so they see it. I tell them about the author. We sometimes read several stories from the same authors. Sometimes there are classic authors. And so they start recognizing the illustrations, the graphic design, but also the meaning and progress of the narrative. I turn the book towards them so they can see it well, as I always tend to learn by heart the story in advance so that I am able to turn the pages while showing them the book. And I also ask to participate. Uh, to describe for me scenes, details, and I dramatize my storytelling with voice changing. Daniela shared with us something that she had enjoyed particularly. Donc, le the best memory that I treasure, really the most beautiful, is when, after one year of storytelling in Italian, reading stories at their level, singing little songs and all that, I arrived one day without voice, 
So I told them that I was not going to be able to read them a story and asked them for help with a book that I had chosen with little text but very well illustrated and asked them to tell me the story. Well, it was so great, so amazing, as they narrated it for me, the most beautiful story I've ever heard and mimicking my voice and intonation. It was even more beautiful than the author's story. And for me, it was an amazing accomplishment. An accomplishment magnifique. I was curious to know the kind of progress that this kind of intervention had shown. Kids were between four and six years old. And uh, the nicest thing was that the children who were more timid at the beginning were the ones that turned to be the most active and involved, and even who could express the better and share more ideas. And that for me, that, I don't know how to say it, is just so heartwarming, it's fantastic, a uh, true reward. So mainly at the level of language acquisition, Fantastic improvements occurred and educators shared very good feedback with me, saying that they had seen a lot of progress in the acquisition of Luxembourgish. So the link with the local language of socialization was strengthened and it improved as the intervention with Italian storytelling went on. With the knowledge of our expert Kaya and in line with what we have just heard, What connections are there between Daniela's lived experience and what research says about exposing children to various languages simultaneously at early age? So there's a, a couple of uh, points we can consider. First, full exposure to a language is key for a child. Some parents might want to expose their child to a majority community language, for instance, early on, um, and may do so rather than expose their child to their own family language. And parents might opt to do that even if they themselves are not proficient speakers of that majority community language. But a child's first language skills do in fact support their second language skills uh, and literacy skills in the first language transfer to the second. So we want to ensure that children are fully able to fully learn that first language and, and that should be the language that parents and caregivers are most proficient in. Researchers Uh, overwhelmingly points to the benefits of early bilingual exposure for, for language outcomes. So simply put, if the goal is to support a child's language skill, exposure to that language earlier is better than, say, waiting to expose to that child to their, their second language at some point in childhood later on. Having heard about the links between Kaya's research and Daniela's inspiring work supporting bilingual pre-primary children in Central Europe, we move south to a different context. We arrive in Africa, where dealing simultaneously with various local languages and having to learn an official language is not uncommon. This is the kind of learning that Olasan Kunmi supports in Nigeria. Olasan Kunmi is a creative and highly engaged teacher whose work has merited winning the Best Teacher in Nigeria Award in 2019 and being in the list of the 10 finalists of the Global Teacher Prize 2020. He teaches English in lower secondary school, years in a public school in a suburban area of Abuja. 
Oh, Lassun Kami teaches in a community where many local languages are spoken, but he teaches English, which is the official language in his country, Nigeria. I asked him why he thinks that teaching English is so important for these multilingual students. You need to teach the effective communication using English language, one, to make students global citizens, and that is key for me. So anytime I enter class, well, the students I see before me are not local students, but they are global champions and world changers. And one of the vehicles of doing this is truth language, and the language is English. Knowing that Olasun Kanmi has won several awards for his creative, context-based and innovative pedagogical approaches, he shares with us some of his strategies. I create songs around some of the concepts of the subject they are, we are teaching. I create songs, I, at times I rap, at times I create games. The student will sing along too, and then we generate examples, and they discover, wow, this class is different from the previous ones from any other classroom. Everybody wants to learn now. And oftentimes students see English phonology as difficult. Yes, it's not the common thing we learn every day. So it seems difficult for them, but introducing entertainment into it makes it easier with the students. When we do the English phonology, of course, we generate examples that will be written down. But if you are talking about writing exercise, like writing composition, it's another aspect of English language that we also have another style, not, not songs now, another style of teaching. Personally, I've created another style that can fit into that one. And that's more of like a dance step that is popular in the country. Let me be specific. There's a particular dance in the country we call Shaku Shaku, where you start with shaking your head and then you lift your hand in a, in a stylistic way like that. And then you start shaking your leg too. So, and then when you are writing essay, the basic thing with them is that you need five, at least five paragraphs. And in dance Shaku Shaku, you also need five parts of your body. That's your head, your two hands, and your two legs. So we compare that one with the essay writing. I asked him if he wanted to share a particular experience that was especially relevant in his career, and he shared a very personal and touching story. I said it's a very emotional question, but I will just be sure that I'm in control of this because the student in question is late, that is dead. His name was James. I met him in 2008. 13, very brilliant, but could not read and could not write. But James will remember everything you taught him in the class. So one day I did a little research on dyslexia and I discovered that problem, the problem James had was dyslexia. So I went to his mother and then we agreed that okay, I was going to bring him up and um, help him. And in the space of six months of regular drilling, reading, relating well, exposing him to writing and the rest, James became very sound, originally brilliant. So it became very easier for him. By the time he wrote his examination, he had a credit in that. And it, this happened in a space of six to eight months. I think I met him in 2013, sometimes around August. And by March, when he was writing his certificate examination in the school, he cleared his results, both uh, the national certificate and the West African examination certificate. And basically, I can't forget him. He had that issue, dyslexia, and through regular exposure to reading, relating with him, using some of the styles, ICT, integration I use in the classroom, a little form of entertainment. I had not really gone fully into that then. I was able to assist him. And, um, well, it's a testimony in his own, but um, it's not available now to share it, but I'm sharing it for him. Basically, what works for him 
was the fact that I gave my time, I showed interest in him, and that gave him the encouragement to, to come out of his shell. As I often ask other teachers, Olasun Kanmi also taught me about what is for him the most rewarding part of his work. Basically, for me as a teacher, what is most rewarding, apart from all the awards I've won, stuff that I've gotten for the school, have always been my results. Once the result of my examination comes out and my students can give me up to 90% pass rate, well, nothing makes me happier than that. Nothing makes me happier than that. I enjoy just seeing the result. I enjoy my students when they come back and tell me, yes, they're in the university now. Oh, you taught me many years ago. I am in year three. I'm in year four now. I've come to say thank you. So it's always rewarding. It's always, I feel fulfilled seeing that. To visit our last interviewee, we will travel to Asia, where Jose Luis teaches Spanish as a second language in an international school in Singapore to high school students. I first asked Jose Luis to paint a picture of the multilingual and multicultural context he teaches in and about his students. People from all around the world uh, are teaching and are studying there. Uh, the facilities are really gorgeous. It's a great place to to explore a lot of things. I think that this is the best thing that the school uh, offers, the possibility to explore. If, if you if you are a curious student, you can explore several kind of types of, of things. So you can explore cultural things, and manual things, artist things, and there are a lot of opportunities for everybody. I teach in high school from ninth grade to, to 12th grade, and kids from 14 to 18 years old. Most of them are Americans or are American passport holders. Uh, some of them are first generation. Some of them are all Americans. Uh, there are other communities like Indians, for example, or Chinese. They are willing to learn. They are eager to learn. They want to explore new things. They want to, to know things that will be useful for them in the future. Sometimes there's, a, there's an obsession for the great. There's a grading obsession. One of the frustrations of the teacher is that the students wants to pass. Unfortunately, I, I, I found out that the, the biggest obsession of the, of the students is to pass. And in my case, in, the, in this school, it's not only to pass, it's to pass with a great grade. That's the, the, the most important thing in their brain. And our work is to try to, to make them to understand that that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the, to learn the language and, and to know that they have a language that they can use in the future for a lot of things. Knowing that Jose Luis is a teacher with many years of experience, but who is also a recognized author of fiction and poetry for young people, I wanted to know about Jose Luis's personal touch, and so I asked him about the pedagogical perspectives or strategies that he prefers. I love poetry. Then, even though poetry is not part of the program, I try to introduce uh, poetry as an illegal product. <laughs> and I tend to read to them when, when the topic when I find a correlation between the topic that we are that we're working on and some poetry that I know from some famous author, I try to read that kind of poetry. And most of the time in the, in, in the lower the levels, they, they don't get it and I have to explain the full thing. But sometimes in the, in the higher levels, they get it and it's, this is amazing. When I read poetry to them, I, I, I try to read poetry that I really love. And most of the time I know it by heart. Then they are amazed because I can, I can say a, a sonnet or a or, or longer poem by, by heart because it's something that I repeat 
all of my life and I know it because I love poetry. Once, some time ago, I went to Lima in front of other, it was a group of my former students in Peru. And he said, no, no, soon el amor, sino el espanto. That's, that's the, the 11th birth of a, of a sonnet, perdón, the 13th birth of a sonnet of um, Borges about Buenos Aires. And he was expecting me to finish that, that, that line. It was funny. That was amazed because after, I don't know, 10 years after he finished, he, he finished school, I don't know what he remembered or what, what, what I thought, but he remembered f- perfectly the pair of line of, of Borges. No? And I was really happy with that. Finally, I asked José Luis why he thinks that teaching a second language, Spanish in this case, is so important for him and for his students. To, to connect ideas, when I, when I start my, my, my classes, my, my year, I tell them that I'm not teaching them the language, that if they want to learn the words of the language and the, and the grammar of the language, they can go to an application on the internet. It's going to be cheaper for them to do it. And maybe it's going to be a better teacher than me. What I'm trying to teach to them, I tell them, is uh, the spirit of the language, no? how it feels to think in Spanish, how it feels to, to write in Spanish, what I love about being a teacher, the relation with, with the students, and how I can change a life by using the language as a tool. No? The language, I use the, the language, I, I use my passion for the language, I, I use my love for Spanish, but what I really do is I create relations, no? because... Finally, I'm a poet. I always say, I am a poet because I write poetry. Maybe the, the, the scholars, the people who know, they can say that I am a bad poet. Maybe I am a terrible poet, but I am a poet. I, I don't know if it's correct or not, but for me, my topic, Spanish, is not the most important thing that I do in, in the school. My relation with the students is the most important thing. As we have heard in these stories, kids whose mother tongue is perhaps not the same as the language in which they are being taught need good teaching support. Let's close this interesting episode with some observations on how educators might best support bilingual or multilingual children from our expert, Kaya. The ways in which we best support uh, children in bilingual education programs really depends on the goals of the program. So there are lots of different types of programs that align to different contexts. So again, like I said, it really depends on the goals of the program and the kinds of opportunities that speaking the majority language might afford the child when they reach secondary school and later allows them to uh, pursue tertiary education as well. Now, with that said, some of our our work in in, uh, low literacy communities in Cote d'Ivoire finds that bilingual education, if it's not implemented in a high quality way, is insufficient to support any advantage. So quality education is truly key. It almost doesn't matter which language we teach our child in and when we start what language, if we're not providing that education in a high quality way. So that means, particularly with respect to bilingual education, teachers that are well-trained and proficient in the languages they teach in and well-developed pedagogical materials in both languages. Lastly, in many parts of the world, there are children who might not start school on time. So say kids should start school about age six. But if children start school late, that naturally delays their exposure to the language of instruction. And certainly the evidence on the importance of early acquisition is perhaps another reason we could cite for why it's essential to ensure that all children have access to schooling at the right age.
you have just listened to another episode of Teacher's Voices. If you have liked this episode, please stay tuned, follow, share it with your friends and your colleagues. And don't forget to tune for the following episode around distance learning. Voices de Profesores. Teacher's Voices.